Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast. Coming from California, here's Aaron Alvarado and David Stauffer. Welcome to the Brave Little Podcast. So we're moving into our top five. So uh, yeah. yeah, let's hear it. Number five from Shannon. Yeah, my number five is Marriage Story. Woo. And now seeing it on my list, I feel like I should have put it higher. But here we <laughs> are. Yeah. I uh, I really like it. Honestly, these top five, it's like you could I could switch any of them out and they're all so strong and I love them all so much. Yeah, it's really tough. Um, Yeah, I mean, Aaron's already talked about it. I I love Adam Driver. I think that he gave the male performance of the year. He's really incredible. And his ability to, I think, perform in a very like small natural way but then he can kind of explode when he needs to um he just has such range in doing that and it's really awesome um i (laughs) the whole noah bomback part of it is interesting because you watch it going into it thinking well you know he's he's kind of writing this from his own life a little bit um so i know some people have criticized it for that um but Scarlett Johansson gives this whole speech to Nora, uh, played by Laura Dern, her lawyer, um, about why she feels like this marriage needs to end. And for him to have written that from, you know, the wife's perspective, I just, I hope that he came out of the relationship and learned something from it. Um, Because that whole speech I thought was beautiful. And um, I know that a lot of women feel that way that they're kind of overshadowed by their husbands and so that was great but I think like every performer in this really gets a good speech in it um so ScarJo gets that one Adam Driver gets um that whole screaming match (laughs) I would say is probably the biggest point um and Laura Dern gets a whole awesome speech about how Mary is the pedestal of which all other women have to like aspire to and um so yeah it's great and it also ends on Company, um, is one of my favorite musicals ever. And it ends on two songs from Company. Uh, ScarJo sings one, and then Adam Driver sings another one. And if you've seen that musical, it like perfectly encapsulates what both of those characters are feeling at the end of the film. So, yeah, it's just, it's really well-written and great. Great. Marriage story. Wow. All right. Aaron, number five. <laughs> Number five for me is The Lighthouse. Oh, good. Robert Eggers good. directed. Explain the ending for us. Uh, no, I won't <laughs> spoil do. it for you. I will not spoil that ending for you. It's something that you have to experience for yourself, and I will not taint that experience. I'll just say. Have you not seen it yet? I, 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 I don't. I, I have. For me, this is a movie that. Stoffer. Oh no! I've. Oh, yeah. I've have you seen it? Seen it? I, I, yeah. I saw. Oh, okay. I saw it in, a, in an empty theater. Say. Well, no. There are two other guys in the theater with me, and they they kept looking over at me throughout the movie, like reacting in a way where they wanted me to like. I, I refused <laughs> to look over at them, and the, I kid you not, the credits rolled, and they they like, can we talk about this? You know, and I was like, nah, I gotta go home. <laughs> and like, I had no interest in talking to them about it. Um, yeah, I think that, that's the kind of that is the kind of movie you want to see um, in an empty theater, just you and one other person, no, just so you can have that awkwardness. Awkward, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and it's um, if you haven't seen the trailer, uh, I I suggest you watch it. Um, it's the movie's incredible. I mean, it is just so so unique. It's all about these two guys working in a white house. Uh, excuse me, a lighthouse. Um, 
on this like on this uh, it's not an island or something i don't really know the location but basically it's just these two isolated men um against mother nature and dealing with this lighthouse this old school lighthouse and it's all about um how they deal with that isolation and how they try to maintain their sanity and how it's impossible to do that because this is just it's torture essentially what they're doing so um, yeah, Robert Pattinson and, and Willem Dafoe, they go off. And uh, it, the movie really reminded me a lot of The Shining, just the way they, the way they, they approach the mental illness aspect of Absolutely. it. Um, and the isolation and the fact that uh, they're driven mad, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it borrowed a lot from that. I think it's, this is considered a horror movie. I don't know if I would consider it a horror movie. Oh. But it's Robert Eggers, who directed uh, The Witch a couple years ago. Um so yeah, this movie is just really, really twisted and dark and and weird. It's very weird. It's a very strange movie. Uh, but yeah, I, I highly recommend it. And if you like, if you like odd movies, go ahead and check out uh, the Lighthouse. It's a really fun. It's a it. fun one to recommend to people. Um, yeah. If you're like, should I go see the Lighthouse? I'm like, go see it as soon as you can. Like, <laughs> um, no, I mean, oh, and it's beautiful, by the way. It's, it's, it's great shot performances. Beautifully yeah. shot. It's really, I mean. Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson both are are incredible. Now, when it comes to the story, now that's where it's we're gonna you know I would say the general public, most people, I'd say in my family or friends, I I just don't think are gonna have a good time at the theaters as a worker. I mean, do you do you really need a story in a movie? Is my question. That I, this is a great. <laughs> this is a great debate. Um, <laughs> After seeing the lighthouse, I'm gonna say no. You don't need a story. No, so. no. All you need is. Two guys and an island and a lighthouse, and you've got a movie. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. The, I don't know if you remember. Early in the year, they released a still of this film, and I don't know if that's because it played at Sundance or some other festival. But it's a black and white still of Robert Pattinson and a weathered-looking Willem Dafoe, uh, which might be a redundant statement, but um, Willem Dafoe with like a pipe and like their sailor caps. And it was. I remember looking at that. It was. I said. It's one of those frames where I just instantly felt like I'm going to see that movie as soon as it's available. Like, say no more. I'm in on that movie. Uh, and so, yeah, it and it was wilder than I could have imagined. Uh, in fact, I went to a holiday party with some buddies uh, a couple weeks ago when some of my friends were coming into town for, for Christmas and um, movies got brought up. And one of the guys in the group said, oh, The Lighthouse is the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, no. And uh, and he asked me, he's like, what did you think? I said, well, counterpoint, it might be the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he, the look at his face, he was flabbergasted. And I was like, actually, I don't think it's the best movie I've ever seen. But like, I actually did like the movie quite a bit as kind of as, as a, an art. I, I don't know, like as a work of art, it was fascinating to, to wrestle with. Um, I can't say that I'm going to be rewatching it many times. And how about that mermaid scene? <laughs> yeah. yeah, how about it? Um, this was not The Little Mermaid. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, hats off to Robert Pattinson, though, for giving the three weirdest performances of the year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like he was in High Life, which is the strangest movie I saw this year, and I did not like that one at all, yes. but he's quite good in it. And then in The King with that weird French accent, <laughs> he's, oh. his post-Twilight stuff is just awesome. And now he's going to be Batman, which I love, um, which is I good. Know. Get Huge paid. Fan. Get paid. Because The Lighthouse, what did he make? A hundred bucks? I mean, there's no way that movie had a budget, right? I mean, oh, like they, they, no. he got craft services and, and a handshake, I bet. But <laughs> he got to keep that pipe. That, uh... <laughs> they left him there on the island, um, lying yeah. on the rocks yeah. or something. Uh, anyway. 
Uh, all right. Are we my number five? Is that where we're at? Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. My number five. Uh, another divisive film, I would say. Maybe not as much as The Lighthouse, but I found this film to be divisive, uh, and that is Ad Astra. Um, maybe I'm overstating its divisiveness, but I will say. Maybe more than any other movie on my list, I had people text me asking me if this was worth seeing. Uh, I think because people kept hearing conflicting things about whether this was good or not or an enjoyable movie going experience or not. And I think people see a trailer. It's Brad Pitt in space. Let's do this. Right. We got Matt Damon in space with The Martian. We had Matthew McConaughey in space with Interstellar. You know, and so people love Brad Pitt. People love space movies. But those aren't the reasons why you'd want to see Ad Astra. Um, I... uh, I loved this movie. Um, it's really the anti-Martian. This is like the opposite of the Martian with Matt Damon. Uh, without giving away spoilers, this weirdly makes the case against space exploration. Uh, or maybe not necessarily against space exploration uh, kind of writ large, but about the idea of being so focused on what's out there. And, uh, and the themes of this film are not subtle, but it's really about being grounded and present and, and making sure you're focused on the people that are in front of you, your loved ones, the people that matter to you now, and that we aren't kind of, that our ambitions aren't so lofty that we're looking to the stars, which is what Ad Astra, I think, means is to the stars, um, to kind of escape our problems. Now, this is a movie that is Brad Pitt with Daddy Issues, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Um, I, it, this movie really actually resonated with me in many, many ways. I loved how meditative it was, how slow it was. Um, even though the, like I said, the message of it was not subtle and there was a lot of voiceover, which some people had issues with, I still ate it all up. Um, this, uh, it's, I say it's not the Martian. It's not the interstellar or it's not interstellar either. Although same cinematographer, the incomparable, uh, is it Hoyt Van Hoytema? I believe is how you say his Mm -hmm. name. This is, it's just beautifully shot. Um, so I really loved this film. I recognize not everyone will for the reasons that I loved it, but it's my favorite number five film of the year so ad astra it's james <laughs> the best part of my christmas vacation <laughs> so my brother loves this movie um oh. and he got it on 4k for christmas and so he thought oh we the whole family will sit mm. down and watch this mm. and my mom who interstellar went way over her head and so i'm just waiting <laughs> she had to kind of to my brother she's like oh yeah i loved <laughs> like watching her trying to pretend that she that's liked great. it was pretty maybe funny. she gave the performance of the year maybe that's <laughs> yeah mm. so, oscar to my mom so she had to uh fake fake the reaction for the, your brother huh he sounds like a bit of a snowflake to me oh <laughs> <laughs> oh gee anyway um so add astra with the family that would be an interesting experience um <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Did you, uh, either of you, high, I, Aaron, you were high on this film? Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed okay. it quite a bit. It was probably like my number 14 or 15. Okay. It, I Yeah, I thought Brad Pitt was amazing in it. Shannon? It was were... basically Apocalypse Now in Space, which is awesome. <laughs> you were less Great. high on this. Right? Awesome. I, yeah, I was. I. It's really beautiful, that whole opening segment where he's... I, what is it? He's like working on something just above the stratosphere when he falls. Like that, there are so many beautiful shots. I really like the themes in it that you talked about. It was just very slow, and mm-hmm. there are so many parts of it where I don't know if it's spoiling it to kind of talk about the um, on the moon when they have uh, the 
different rovers are kind of competing to get land on the moon. Like, there were so many parts of it. I'm like, I want to know more about that. And then they just move on and do something else, which is fine. But there were a lot of interesting ideas that don't get explored in it. Yeah. Yeah, I was less enthused. Also, it, my one, my primary complaint is it's a criminal underuse of Ruth Nega. If you're going to cast her in your film, please give her something to do. Um, yes, it felt like a weird throwaway scene, and she's such a good actress. Um, she uh, she's known for I think primarily probably loving is probably her most prominent role, but she was nominated for an Academy Award, should have won. But anyway, that's my one criticism for it, and I do kind of I understand what you're saying about it, but weirdly, this film worked for me a lot better than it it seemed to for a lot of people. Uh, All right, number four, Shannon. Yeah, so my number four is Loose, um, which is another film no one has seen. (laughs) So I will talk it up. Um, I saw this at Sundance. What do you say? (laughs) No. (laughs) L U C E, like light. Um, Yeah, it was my favorite film at Sundance this year. um, And I saw it again kind of late summer, and I was still high on it. So I. It's really good. It's a film, again, that's really hard to describe. I will make an attempt. But um, so Luce is um, a a black high school student whose parents adopted him from a war-torn African country. And so he... um, He's done really well. Like, he's kind of the all-star at the school. He's on, like, the track team and um, is doing really well. And he's kind of become this... um, like, I don't know, the epitome of, you know, you can kind of come from a hard background and really still make it. And so a lot of people, he's a great example in the school, a lot of people look up to him. Um, Octavia Spencer um, is his teacher, and she gets a paper from him that he's written from the perspective of, I think it's a warlord. And anyway, they got an assignment to write a paper from the perspective of a historical figure. And he writes this paper and kind of has an interesting view on violence in order to, like, as a means to an end. And so she's concerned about this. And anyway, so you don't know whether Luce is actually this all-star student or whether he actually has these opinions on radical violence being a good thing. And um, Naomi Watts plays his adoptive mother and she's fantastic in it. Octavia Spencer, I think is a wonderful actress, but I feel like she's been given roles that are very similar. Um, And this is a part that they actually gave her something to do and she's so good in it. Um, I don't think there are that many films that, just give you no easy answers and are really ambiguous. Um, it just lets you kind of figure it out on your own and try to decide for yourself, is Luce good? Are the parents right? Is Octavia right? Um, so that's just kind of the start of it. There's all sorts of twists and turns. But yeah, I just, I don't see a lot of films like that and was really impressed by it. Is the get a wide release? It did. Oh, is it it's but, still in well, theaters or is it on digital? Maybe it was a... Maybe it was a limited release. Um, I just don't remember yeah, even seeing I it in theaters. Like, I, I really, I, I remember seeing the trailer, I know. <laughs> but um, yeah, after seeing Ma, I want, I was ready for the next Octavia Spencer film. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, gee. I actually didn't see Ma. Yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was definitely, I was looking out for it. So it was probably just limited. But yeah, I should look into, I don't know where it's streaming now, but that was in August. So I'm sure it's streaming somewhere. Great. All right, Aaron, you're number four. Number four is The Irishman. Ooh. Martin Scorsese, my favorite, all, my all-time, uh, my number two, my second favorite all-time director, Who's Martin Scorsese. Is Kubrick? That's uh, Stanley, Stanley K, Mr. Mr. Kubrick. Um, the Irishman is a return to form for Mr. Scorsese. I thought it was a brilliant movie. I wish that it were 30 minutes longer. Um, oh, every Anyone that has said a bad word about this movie is lying. Do not listen to them. This is an amazing, amazing film. Um, and I loved every moment of it. I thought it was just brilliant. I thought Joe Pesci and Scorsese, uh, excuse me, Pacino and um, De Niro, they're in, in fine form. All of them did great. This is essentially the movie of... Um, what it really means to be a mobster. Um, it's, it's ugly. There's there, it's fake friends everywhere. They're all haters. Um, a lot of negativity and, uh, you're just doing a lot of bad things. And at the end of the day, you end up either dead or an old man, um, alone in a old folks home <laughs> telling your story about, um, your glory days to a, a nurse's aide that does not care what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but imagine being <laughs> You hear stories like that as a nurse's aide, but imagine hearing Frank Sheeran's story like, wait, hold up. What happened? (laughs) Uh, Exactly. Exactly. So I just thought this movie was incredibly powerful because uh, really that's the message, right? So if Goodfellas is the story of like the glitz and the glamour of being a gangster, this is like the dark side of it. Like this is what really happens. All your friends die. They all stab you in the back and they try to kill you. And then if you're lucky enough to make it out alive, um, everyone's dead around you. You have nothing. So... Congrats! You had an amazing life. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting take on the on the the gangster genre, and I think like it's been said before, but this is this could be the end of the gangster genre. I think Scorsese was responsible for basically um, giving us the Italian gangster movie, and now he's closed the book on it. This is the final act, really. Um, and I just thought it was a brilliant movie, and I can't wait to watch it again. I loved every minute of it. So, so you've Irishman, seen, you've watched it once. I have watched it one whole time, yes. All right. There's only so many hours in a day. Well, I can't. <laughs> it's on your phone. You can watch it anytime you want. Round this the clock. This is true. Um, this is true. Yeah, look, didn't I just De Niro is obviously a legend. But, you know, we we see him and Pacino both, but you see these legends of the uh, the end of their years picking roles and being in movies where it's hard to watch, Brando famously so, where it was it was a struggle. Uh, here you it was just so nice to see De Niro care again now that the last act especially the last act is the last six hours of the film he is on <laughs> fire and like once you you're you know a moment is coming you know this thing is you know you're, you're barreling towards this event and as that is it's kind of setting in what's going to be required of his character the quiet work that he's doing in those moments is really special and it's just so cool to see that from De Niro again it's really good yeah, and I think one of the un the unsold th- or the the untalked about things is just how much of a master Scorsese is. Like everything about this movie is just masterful. This is the, the way that it's edited and shot, and the this is a this is film school. If you watch what Scorsese is doing, he has an entire encyclopedia of, in his head of how the mechanics of a movie should look, uh, an American movie, modern day, whatever you want to consider it. 
he has the reference to all of it and he knows exactly what he wants and he knows exactly what he wants on that screen so you should be taking notes if you watch if you want to make movies this is it like this is this is a master at um at the top of his game and he's like 72 years old or something he's incredible he's he's amazing um yeah so i just love this movie so much and if you didn't love it, you're wrong. So yes, yes. so there. <laughs> um, all right, uh, my number four is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Um, I'll keep my comments brief, uh, but I obviously love Greta Gerwig. Lady Bird was my favorite film of 2017. Uh, I saw this film in a packed house, sold out theater in Sydney, Australia, and. To be honest, it sounds kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, weirdly sentimental, but I had this weird sense of pride just seeing this theater full, you know, an international theater full of people, uh, especially the reaction, which people are buzzing. People really love this movie. But just seeing a packed theater thinking like, Greta Gerwig has done it. Like she, she is making art that is, you know, internationally uh, being accepted and championed and celebrated and and she's one of Sacramento's own. And I know I keep talking about that, but just like I, I have so much pride and uh, just for her accomplishments. But especially since she follows up Lady Bird, which, uh, you know, look, a lot of first filmmakers movies can be semi autobiographical like Lady Bird was. Um, and so you, you hope that they can be creative outside of the bounds of their own personal story. And this is a great example of that. This was a high degree of difficulty when you're doing an adaptation of something that had been adapted a lot of times. Now, I've never seen any of the previous adaptations for Little Women. I did not read the book, um, but I saw it with Lindsay, and I didn't even know this until you know we sat down to watch the movie, but she apparently has seen the 1994 adaptation more, more than any other movie ever. She said that she's... Growing up, we, they, her and her sister watched it on repeat. She loves the movie. And I'm like, what? I, I had no idea. And so I was really curious to see how she felt, especially in comparison. But um, And I'll tell you, she loved it. She thinks it's the best version of Little Women that she's seen. Uh, for me, exploring that story for the first time was a blast because I actually didn't know what was going to happen or what characters were going to uh, end up where. But uh, it was just to do a film like this that's been told so many times and, and do it in a way that's fresh that's inventive, that's interesting, and, and maybe, I don't know, you tell me, uh, Shannon, I'm assuming you know more about it than I do, but it's probably the best version of the story. Um, it was something that, I, it was just a tremendous film. Well acted, it was funny, it was heartwarming, beautifully shot, the direction on this is so stellar. So like I said earlier about Jordan Peele and us, you know, how he's not a one-hit wonder, same thing goes for Greta Gerwig <laughs> here. She's clearly one of the great talents working today, and she's got, just such a career ahead of her and I'm so excited to see what she does next because she's just one of the greatest storytellers alive so yeah that's my number four little women yeah I would agree with you that it's that I'll have more thoughts on it later (laughs) Um, but I would agree with you that it's the best version but you're gonna go back and watch the 94 are you gonna make me do that (laughs) with Lindsay yes Winona Ryder Christian Bale okay yes Mm -hmm. it is so good you need to see it I I was honestly stunned and if I'm being frank when I found out that Greta Gerwig was gonna follow up Lady Bird with adapting some movie that had been made a bunch of times and yeah. some you know it's called little women and i never didn't know much about it i was a little bit like disappointed <laughs> like um is this movie probably not going to be for me you know uh but <laughs> well look the title i mean you know i just you know i don't think i was the target demo 
to be, if I'm being totally honest. But I watched that movie. I'm like, <laughs> oh, actually, turns out I, I am. Like, this is absolutely a movie someone like me can, and I did enjoy. It was really tremendous. It's my fourth favorite film <laughs> of the year. So, I honestly like. I, it was somewhere between two and four. I mean, it was bouncing around. I mean, it was just that's how highly I thought of it. I, I couldn't. I could hardly believe it walking out of the theater. It was just. It was so good. So, all right, top three, Shannon, you're number three. Yeah. Um, so my number three is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ooh, um, I'm sure. Huh, yeah. Um, like the only mention I'm of it sh- this evening. Oh, mm-hmm. no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure that I'm the first in many comments about this. So I'll keep it brief. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big Tarantino fan. I feel like this is a whole other side of Tarantino where, again, I don't know how much I can say about this, but... Um, to hold off on the violence so long, but have it be a more contemplative kind of film throughout. And like I was saying with Pain and Glory, I think Tarantino has gotten older and is starting to think about his life. And um, yeah, I, oh, what can I say? Just all the performances are so good in it. Um, Brad Pitt at the top of his game. And I think this is the year that I really came around on Brad Pitt. I mean, he's amazing, but I don't know. With stuff in his personal life, like, it's hard to kind of separate that sometimes. And he's just a fantastic actor and is so good in that role. Uh, Leo's great. Um, It's fun if you're interested in movie history, um, how much of that gets looped into it. I know there's a lot of controversy around um, the Sharon Tate part of it and Margot Robbie not having many speaking lines in it but I think she just she does such a good job and I think it's actually obviously Tarantino really loves Sharon Tate and her work to have you know Margot Robbie kind of sitting watching her own film and reacting the way she does um I think it's a lovely tribute to her um yeah I don't, I'm sure I'll have more to yes. <laughs> once it comes up again. Hopefully it comes up again, but yeah, really enjoyed it. And it seemed, it was a film that I think earned its time too. I can't tell you how many movies this year I've sat and watched way over two hours. Um, but I really do think I just wanted to stay in that world because all the characters are so fascinating. So it earned that runtime. Great. All right, Aaron, you're number three. <laughs> My number three is the movie Parasite. Okay, it's also my number three. So, oh wow. <laughs> okay, so we should just go. Uh, we'll trade sentences. I'll say a sentence in, in, in you Korean, sentence. though. In Korean. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well. Well, and can I bring? This is my number Perfect. two. All so right. Yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah, the list. We can just get it all to do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Parasite, um, I didn't know what to expect. I don't know if you guys heard anything about this before you went to go see it, but I didn't. I was completely going in this blind. And, man, was I shocked at how amazing this movie was. It was an incredible ride. Um, yeah, just to, like, set the scene, basically, the movie is about class warfare. It's all about this uh, this family that lives in basically a tenement kind of basement apartment in South Korea. Um, and it's, they're completely poor. They don't have jobs. They, um, they, um, struggle to survive. They can barely feed each other. And, um, uh, the, the son gets a job translating for this rich family. And, um, part of the story is that he tricks these rich people into hiring his parents and his sister 
and um, by saying there are these other people that he's not related to. So that's like the main premise is basically how this family gets in or, or how this poor family gets involved with this very rich family and um, siphons off their money. Uh, and that's the parasite aspect of it. But the movie itself is so much bigger than that. Like that's just one little fraction of it. Um, overall, the movie's just, first of all, it's gorgeous. Like it is, it's one of the best looking films I've seen this entire year. Um, it's completely modern. It's just of the moment. Um, I don't know a lot about Korean culture, South Korean culture, um, but apparently like this is pretty spot on. Um, and it's just really fascinating to see a peek in the, the these lives of these two polar opposites, one haves and then the have nots uh, and the way they interact. So I just love the movie. I thought it was brilliant and I cannot recommend it enough. If you like thrillers, if you like mysteries, um, this is the movie for you. It's It's really shocking how interesting the story is and yes it is all in korean and there are subtitles no, but it does not some, matter no, there's like some english there is there is you're right there's a couple <laughs> there's a little bit of english three but you get words. lost in it right away it's like you don't even think about that you're you're reading subtitles um after about five minutes so yes do yourself a favor and watch parasite it's incredible in the incredible words movie. of its director bong joon ho uh who accepted an award recently uh while accepting that award he said through his translator quote once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films, which is this is a so great true. example of that. So good. Yeah. I, um, it's a, this film's a masterpiece. I talked earlier about how there are many films in 2019 that explored class disparity. Uh, and this is the very best of them. And I'm, look, we had us knives out. Uh, certainly, uh, mm-hmm. goes into that a hotel Mumbai, uh, certainly. And this is the masterpiece of the bunch. This is the one that does something that is so unexpected, so thrilling. And I'm talking about this tonal balance that's really remarkable because it's happening when you don't realize that it's happening. Because this movie in parts is actually genuinely hilarious. And then there are parts that are genuinely shocking and devastating. Uh, But it's this just impeccable way of mixing those tones and these feelings and as the story is starting to to uh, kind of unfold and maybe unravel is a, is a better word. Uh, it is, I mean, this is a family that is on the fringes. They're acting out of desperation and seeing where that gets them um, and what ends up happening. I just didn't know where the film was going to go. And I love being in a movie where I'm like, I love that I'm in on this, but and I have no clue what's going to happen. There's no part of this that's predictable. Uh, and it's just, it's Bong Joon-ho certainly his greatest film. Uh, this is a film that should be nominated for best picture of course in addition to foreign language film and so yeah it's it's a masterpiece shannon it's your number two yeah um you you said almost literally Sorry. what's on my Sorry. notes here about it so no you're good um yeah there have been a lot of films this year i wrote it down as like what is the cost of your pri- of your privilege if there's like one question that film answered this year i think that's it and this is the one that does it best although i would love to like watch this and us back to back because i feel like when you really think about it like a family of four family of four like yeah. kind of two families in each case like there are a lot of parallels between the two that I think would be fascinating to go into um the thing I liked about this one I mean part of it that sets me it sets it apart for me I think is it doesn't shame the other family like the wealthy family either um the main family 
um, at the center of this film does some terrible things, but you feel sympathetic toward them. The wealthy family is not necessarily bad, like you don't hate them, but they also just seem really oblivious to the lives of people around them that don't that aren't as well off as they are. Um, so I liked kind of the balance of that, that it's not, you know, you're not bad, but you're kind of not seeing the world around you. Um, yeah, it was really inventive, really well written. There's some shots in it. I like you just need to go into this movie having not heard anything about it, but there's some really fantastic shots in it. And like you said, it never went the way I thought it was going to go, even till the last like minute of the movie. It didn't go where I thought it was going to go. So, yeah, love that. It's great. Shocking ending. It's truly great. Yeah. All right. Aaron, number two, then. That's where we're at. Number two is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, one of my other favorite directors, along with Scorsese. Uh, yeah, so as Shannon mentioned, this was uh, Tarantino. I think, again, returning back to form, like I spoke about Scorsese. Um, this is the this is maybe my top two or three Tarantino movies, now that, now that I consider it. The movie is just incredible. Like it, from start to finish, it is so vivid and interesting, and and it feels alive. It feels like he really did capture a moment that maybe, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know Los Angeles from 1969. Um, maybe this is real, but whatever it is, like he created this world, and he gives you a peek in it, and you feel like you're a part of it. You feel like you're along for the ride on all these long car trips that uh, that uh, Brad Pitt goes on. Um, yeah, so the movie, I don't know if you haven't heard about it, it's basically the story of a struggling actor, Leo DiCaprio, who is um, kind of unsure about where his career is headed. He's kind of stagnated, and he's now uh, appearing in lesser roles, and he gets an offer to do um, uh, Italian spaghetti westerns. And so he's kind of just battling, like, what, what do I want to do? Like, I, I'm now in my early 40s, and I don't know, I'm not the new kid on the block, um, and I don't have that big, huge uh, star career that I thought I was going to. And now I'm struggling to figure out what's next. Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is um, the Manson family. And then there's a the Brad Pitt angle, which is his like his houseboy, his gopher, um, and how he gets mixed up with the Manson family. So it, it's, there's a lot of layers, just like any Tarantino movie. And um, it's just incredible. Again, vivid. It's it's a slice of life and it makes you, it transports you into this world. Um, you get introduced to Sharon Tate and what's going on in her world and how she's preoccupied with that. And it's just, all of it is just really fascinating. And, and um, it's just like the, one of the best experiences I've had this, this year going to the movie, our last year going to the movies was watching this. So I just couldn't love it more. Once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, number two, just loved it. Great. All right, my number two is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Hey, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Maybe he's right. What if we shouldn't be here? Well, we should be here more. Some millionaire? I'm the last one left. I'm with you, bro. 
adore this film. This is the directorial debut for uh, Joe Talbot, and uh, which is a film co-written by Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails, who plays the lead role. It's a film that's semi-autobiographical, uh, but this is just a gorgeous film uh, that paints a portrait of one of America's great cities. Uh, now, I have a relationship to the city. I would not consider my, I would never call myself a San Franciscan, but I was born there. I've lived most of my life about an hour and a half outside of the city. I work in San Francisco for a company. I'm there all the time. I have, I have a fondness for, and a relationship with this city. Um, and I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on what's so great and so terrible about it. And clearly this film was made by people who have an even more uh, fondness as well as these, the wrestling with the mixed feelings of a city that's changing and not all for the better. Um, but this, I mean, the crux of this film is about this character, Jimmy Fails, who is obsessed with this old Victorian home in San Francisco that his family used to own before they had to foreclose on it and they moved to another part of the city. Uh, and he longs to be in this house again and even takes care of it. Uh, much to the, the chagrin of the current occupants who don't like him uh, kind of hanging around and painting and fixing it. But the thing is, is he's not obsessed with a piece of San Francisco real estate or property. What he's, what he's so fixated on is a thing that represents a time in his life where he had stability, where his family was there, where he had his parents there, it, you know, and he longs to have that. And it's such a message that is universal um, and one that I could certainly relate with and you really are rooting for him. But then this film does this thing where it's exploring a male friendship between Jimmy Fails and uh, a character named Mont, played by Jonathan Majors in an incredible performance. I'd never seen him before in anything, and he is so good in this film as this uh, this character that is uh, an aspiring playwright and is, I would say, like of a different sensibility and is often um, derided by some of the other people in the neighborhood for that. And as he tries to, he tries to direct to this constantly arguing Greek chorus of guys, which is a subplot that I really, really loved. Um, but I won't get into too many more details on it, but I will say that this is the most gorgeous film of the year. They, they really captured San Francisco in, in all its beauty and in some ways it's horror. Um, but clearly this was made from a place of love. It ha also has my favorite score of the year. The music in this film is outstanding. I can't believe this was someone's first film. Um, I've seen it, I think, three times now. And it's just, I'm electrified, electrified every time I, I watch it. It's just, it excites me so much that people can make movies that are this visually interesting and have a, an equally great story to back it up. So it is my second favorite film of the year, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So that's my number two. Okay. Yay. Good choice. I saw that one at... <laughs> I saw that one at Sundance too, and it won a bunch of awards. So I was volunteering the last day where they were playing it at my theater. Um, and <laughs> the people coming out of it, it was just very depressing to me that so many people were like, so what was that about? Oh, wow. <laughs> it was like completely lost on a lot of people. So I'm glad that you've got it in here though. I think it is really beautiful. And especially there's a lot of imagery that kind of matches between Jimmy and the house. So like he is the house and the house is him. And yeah, it's really so, gorgeous. It's great. It's so great. All right. Then there was one. Hey. So our, our yeah. favorite film of the year, Shannon. Yeah. So by process of elimination, what I've said already, number one's Little Women. I 
want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. It's funny, Stavra, that you say, oh, this film doesn't seem like it was made for me because I had the exact opposite reaction. (laughs) Um, Lady Bird was my favorite film two years ago, so you've got Greta Gerwig um, and Saoirse Ronan coming back to the 1994 version of the film. I've watched with my mom so many times. Um, Also, I'm a writer. Also, I'm unmarried and a little bit older for my community, like the community I'm in, I should have been married years ago. And so I really relate to Joe March and have for so long. Um, So there's many personal connections to this film that makes me love it so much. Um, But what Greta Gerwig did, I, I think I almost had a similar reaction though, where I'm like, well, what is, why is she doing little women again? Cause there are so many versions. We even got a BBC one with, uh, Oh, what's her name with Maya Hawk. Oh, as Joe March pretty recently, um, which I, she's great in it, but it was just so, so, but anyway, so with that recent adaptation, I'm like, why do we really need to do this again? Even, but I had hope in it because of Greta, because of Saoirse, um, and Florence Pugh, like every woman in it who, and none of them are American, (laughs) which is so funny because this is like the quintessential female American story. And none of the sisters are played by American actresses. Um, but they're all fantastic in it. And the way Greta does it, I she just brings a fresh look at it by taking... It, Little Women was written in two parts. And she rather, most adaptations take the younger sisters for the first half of the movie oh. and then ages them about four years up. Um, and then... So it does it all chronologically. Um, instead, Greta cuts between these two time periods so that you can see the similarities between the two. For example, hopefully this isn't a spoiler because this book is over 100 years old. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with Beth being sick is cut with Beth's eventual death. Um, and so it makes certain parts of Little Women, it puts it in a new light because it's cut with what's happening earlier. Um, this is the first time I think for people who love little women, um, Amy March is a character that most women hate. Um, she burned her sister's book. She ends up marrying the guy her sister was always in love with. Um, she's a character that no one really likes and Greta Gerwig and Florence Pugh in an excellent performance, give her this new depth and really show why she's the way she is. She needs to get married to someone wealthier than she is in order to elevate her position in this world. Um, yeah, so there, there are just so many wonderful things about it. I could go on and on, but I think the most impactful scene for me was um, Joe telling her mother um, she's rejected Lori, which is another scene with Winona Ryder and Christian Bell that makes me like weep every time. But um, that's already happened. And so she's telling her mother, you know, I'm tired of women being seen as, you know, they only get married and they're only good for being in love. I'm really tired of it, but I'm also really lonely. Um, and just for me, that hit me so hard. And I pretty much just cried through this entire movie, both because I was so glad that Greta took something that matters a lot to me and 
like made it even better than it was. Um, but that, I don't know, I felt seen <laughs> for parts <laughs> that, of it. That, that's so. in particular you're talking about where she says, but I'm so yeah. lonely. From what I understand, that line is from another, the author's, another work from that author that she brought in. Is that right? Or was that not in the previous yeah. adaptations? Yeah. Yeah, so she, I guess, like, 80% of the dialogue, she said, was from Little Women, but then Greta worked in stuff from Louisa May Alcott's actual life, and she she never got married. Um, and Little Women, the publisher kind of told her, you need to end this with her being, with Joe being married. Um, so they that kind of gets worked into the ending, and it changes it a little bit, and yeah, I just loved it. <laughs> I wondered too that ending with uh, with Tracy Letts from Lady Bird. Great seeing him in there. Yeah. yeah. But that conversation about whether or not Joe should be married, I wondered is that, if that was in previous versions of the film or was that Greta's spin on how to kind of end <laughs> that, you know, uh, wrap up Joe's storyline. Yeah. You know, like I, I thought it was a really, really inventive way of doing it. I was hoping that was a Greta touch. Yeah. And so that's good to hear. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, too, like in other versions and in the book, it ends with her uh, like running back to Professor Bear and saying, I love you. We should be together. And so it ends with the two of them. Um, and what Greta had said in an interview, which, again, because I'm a writer, especially, um, she said, I wanted people, you know, people get so excited when there's a marriage or, you know, the kiss at the end. Like, that's what it's always building to. I wanted this to build to her book, you know, and I wanted that to the publishing of her book to be as powerful as the kiss is, you know. And so that meant a lot to me that, you know, it could be an achievement like that, and not just the marriage. That's great. So now I've gone on long enough. It's wonderful. Great. I'm glad Go it's your it. number one. I, I, I I'm going to watch it now. Yeah. You sold me. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron has not seen it yet. We've got to get Aaron there. Uh, yep. Well, great. Aaron, what was your favorite film of 2019? I mean, is it hard to guess? It's Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. It's Uncut Gems. <laughs> I made a crazy risk. We gambled. And it's about to pay off. So I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. It's the dumbest bet I ever heard of. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. I'm, I'm just going to say this right off the bat. This, it's hard to overstate how much I love this movie. This <laughs> might be the movie that I love the most. Um... Maybe ever like this is this has the potential to be my favorite movie of all time. That's how this is. That's how much this movie connected with me. I know I'm overselling it, but I'm just going to tell you right now in my head, you know, growing up when I wanted to make movies, I went to school for it. And I thought like there could be like this movie that, you know, like it hits all the notes that if I could ever make a movie, this would be it. Like this is the movie in my head that I could never make. But I've always wanted to see. Like this is it. This is Uncut Gems. It's it's perfect. Like it, everything about it is perfect for me. It's it's a crime drama. It's all about how complicated human beings are and how ugly, um, uh, how ugly our passions could be. Because like this, the movie is all about. It's all about obsession, essentially. Addiction. Yeah, I was gonna say addiction. I said obsession. Addiction, probably, obsession. Yeah. That's all. That's all it is. Like Adam Sandler is just a man that's obsessed. Like he just wants to be on top. He wants to succeed. He wants to be a winner. 
and his entire life he's not he is a loser like he's decidedly a loser um and th- this is so this is what the movie is it's all about the pursuit of the win so i mean i'm not going to spoil the movie but let's just say things uh no i'm not even going to go into it okay. but i'm just going to say adam sandler is a he's a born loser and for one moment for one day he he is a winner and that's what this that's the journey of this movie so you have the greatest performance of adam sandler's career by far like bar none he oh. is perfect for this role <laughs> yeah. he is unbelievable in this in this uh performance so again i love the safties i love everything they touch they're they're gritty they're very they're throwback to scorsese like these are these are basically scorsese's grandchildren he obviously inspired them it's new york based it's crime drama it's all about real life and I think that's one of the one of the unspoken things about this movie, or hasn't been spoken about a lot, is um, the casting. Like, of course, Adam Sandler's amazing in it. Of course, um, uh, what's his name, Bogosian, is great as as Arno, the the other uh, the other his other cohort. But I'm talking about the background actors in this movie. The real life people that work in the Diamond District that that populate this movie are insane. It's and they're all real people. Like these are not real actors. The, the people that he comes across in his daily life are just real people that the Safdie brothers met or people that are involved in casting Including met. Including one of the main actresses, said, right? Julia Fox? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. They said, you got to be in our movie because you're perfect for it. And they are perfect. Like, that's what specifically makes this movie feel so real. Um, it's because it's real, pe- it's real human beings playing these parts. And so a lot of the movie feels unscripted. It really feels like off the um or it feels like it's they're not reading off a page and if you go back and watch the movie there's certain scenes where they shot outside on the sidewalk and they absolutely did not have permission so you can see people in the background are watching like they're watching what's happening they're watching adam sandler and julia fox like interact like there's one specific scene at a club where there's a guy in the background like literally watching them fight and he's like i don't know if he thinks they're really fighting or not but that's what's happening like you can see it it's it's very funny but this is just all to say that the movie feels authentic and it feels real and it feels like hyper realistic. And I love, love, love how edge of the seat, um, how pulse pounding, how how panic inducing this movie is like everything about it. It just it, it hits all the emotional um, notes that I want in a movie and it just does it perfectly. It's I, I could have watched two more hours of it. It's just so amazing. I mean, I just love everything about it. So Uncut Gems. It's it's a ten out of ten. It's the best movie I've seen in at least ten years. Wow! And I'm telling you, it could be my favorite movie of all time. I just got to give it time. So, so I, I do want to explore one thing with you though, uh, and that is, I mean, this film has been uh, critically praised, right? I mean, yeah, very very uh, high marks, uh, decidedly lower marks with the audience, and I'm referring to both the Rotten Tomatoes audience score as well oh, yeah. as the cinema score where they're pulled right coming out of the theater, which was a C plus, which like <laughs> cinema, that's very hard to get a C plus cinema score. Now, I, we're not going to spoil anything about what happens in the movie or why people might not like it due to things that happen in the movie. But other than, you know, I guess without getting into specifics, why do you think the general audience seems to be struggling with it? Because I loved it. It's in my top 10, but I, there were groans in my theater. I could tell yeah. my theater did not, not entirely, but like there were people that made their displeasure known. Is it well, number, two men? Number one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's the tone. So number one is the tone. Like it's very, it does not let up. There's no good guys. There's only bad guys. And I think number two is Adam Sandler being cast against type. Mm-hmm. So he, 
he is playing a bad guy, like a decidedly bad man. Um, yeah. And it's it's incredibly difficult to root for him. But like Shannon said earlier, you do kind of end up rooting for him a little bit. Yeah. I think like there's there's a part of you that kind of wants to see him succeed because he is a loser. Such like a he's, loser. Yeah. He's yeah, and like everything that he does is terrible. The so way that he dumb. mistreats his family, oh. his his wife is just like very loving and supportive, and and he puts her through the ringer. Like it does, it's crazy. Yeah. So again, I can understand because of the themes, because of the the, the pacing, the structure of it. Um, the it's and it's kind of unconventional. Like I said, like you have regular people acting as in this movie, and it's kind of unconventional in that sense. Um, yeah, so I can see why people wouldn't like it if they went in expecting a different sort of Adam Sandler movie. Uh, so, but but that's great because I think it subverts your expectations. Again, you put Adam Sandler on a movie like this, um, you don't expect him to give this performance that he he gave, so and good. it's a powerhouse. It's the best he's, he's ever, amazing. It's the best performance he's ever given. I, I think by far. Yeah, by far. So there's actually a really great podcast um, with Paul Thomas Anderson and the Safety Brothers talking about you know Paul Thomas Anderson. He made Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler. And then the Safties made this mm-hmm. with Adam Sandler. So they, they got together and they discussed, like, the genius of Adam Sandler as a performer. And he really is. Like, he's a special performer. Which pod? Say what you is will that, about. Is that Directors on Director? Or what is that? No, it's So it's the A24 oh, podcast. Oh, A24 pod. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this this episode came out maybe about three weeks ago. It's it's really interesting. It's fascinating to listen to just to hear the insights of, um, you know, what, what makes a star. Because Adam Sandler is, without a doubt, a star. And again, you know, talk about his Netflix movies, whatever, like he's making a paycheck. He's doing that for for a different set of needs. But when it comes time for him to perform, like it is undeniable how much of a star this man is. Um, But yeah, like he's just his character is just trash. Like he just uses everybody. Um, I mean, it's just it's just an avalanche of bad decisions. And that was the anxiety for I mean, there's a moment early on in the film. And this is not this is not a spoiler because it's early on. But like basically this. Kevin Garnett is in his shop and wants to borrow this rare opal and as collateral he gives him his championship Celtics ring and the moment he takes it I I, I just cringed inside I was like oh this is going to go very badly that you, ring you know is, like it, it's like it's perfect because you know what's going to happen so, yeah. and so the, the <laughs> moment he it's in possession I was like everything's going to go wrong like that's Garnett's Celtics ring you can't don't just maybe put in the safe and don't t- but you know that's not what's going to happen and it's just, impossible you're waiting for the bomb to detonate you know yeah, and, and with all that, I think, again, the, so the ending is not what you expect. So when you get to that ending, it it hits, like, on a level that I was not ready for, and it's perfect. Like, it is it's a the perfect, perfect ending. ending. It's perfect. So, yeah, yeah, and, and it's, um, and I can see why people would be upset by it, though, if, again, because they're not expecting it. So when it happens, and if you're not expecting it, and you're expecting something else, then you can be disappointed. So... Like you said, there's groans in your theater. I could see that. But also, I want to point out, this movie is funny. Like, it's very, very funny. There are scenes that are very funny. Yeah. Um, so it's not just, you know, uh, an action movie or drama or whatever, crime drama. Yeah. It's funny. Like, there's funny elements in it, too. Keith so. Stanfield is great in it. Everything. He's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Like, even little He's scenes, awesome. like when he takes him to the Sixers practice facility and he starts running off trying to, to shoot layups. And you're just, you feel the second, whatever, secondhand embarrassment for Lakeith. Who's trying to be like, you know, I need to build reputation. I can't, he brings him in there and he's just, Howard is acting like an idiot, you know? Just even yes, little things like exactly. that are hilarious. <laughs> like, 
So. Yeah, yeah. So it, the movie's amazing. I cannot recommend it enough. Yeah. Go watch it if you haven't seen it today. And if you don't like it, send me the ticket stuff and I'll give you your money back. You'll do it. I'll, I'm giving you the guarantee <laughs> you will Venmo. right now. It's a personal yes. Aaron guarantee. So, okay. Yeah. When my, so mom... at my Venmo is at David Stoffer. <laughs> so just go ahead and send that stub in. When my mom texts me, should I see Uncut Gems? I'm going to say, hold adding Aaron to the thread. And then I'll have you give her the pitch with the money yeah. back guarantee. Why? Well, I, I know she's a big jewelry fan and she likes basketball. She lo- yeah, huge. Yeah. Uh, my mom, big fan of the Diamond District. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, good. I, I knew that it was going to be on your list. I did not know it was going to be number one. So that's great to hear. Oh, number so, one. Little Women, Absolutely. Uncut Gems. I cannot argue with either of those films being at the so top good. of any list. So that's exciting to see. And, of course, we will. You all know what my number one is, and we'll wrap up with this. Yep. <laughs> and that is uh, Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Seems this world has got you down. You're feeling bad vibration. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. This movie just might go down as my favorite Tarantino film of all time. Um, it's uh, I've seen it eight times in theaters this year. I, I needed to see it that many times, partly because I needed to, for the sake of critical analysis, I needed to remove myself from the experience of seeing it the first time, which we have talked about in depth across two episodes of this podcast. But in short, seeing this film at Quentin Tarantino's theater with Tarantino in the audience and getting to shake his hand afterwards and the way that audience reacts to the film. I mean, you walk out on a like pretty high, like just it was exhilarating. Uh, But you're also in an audience of people that are there for that. You know, it was really the ideal conditions to enjoy the movie. And so it was interesting to see on follow up, you know, viewings, if this was going to feel as exhilarating um, and maybe exhilarating is not even the right word. It's it's because it's a film that's not necessarily in a hurry to go anywhere. And that's part of what I love so much about it. Uh, this uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to point out things I don't like in this film. I, I don't want to say I don't want to say perfect to movie, but I find myself enjoying both these weird small moments as well as the big ones. The fact that I could just watch Brad Pitt drive around in Los Angeles for probably a few hours and and that would be like a good movie and he almost does that in this film but like (laughs) even him making mac and cheese with his dog at his trailer there's these little things throughout this film that Quentin Tarantino which to me this is a sign of a mature filmmaker um, a matured version of Quentin Tarantino where um, while you have the quippy dialogue certainly it's not like Pulp Fiction it's not like Inglorious Bastards and while you do eventually have some of the you know the hallmark Tarantino violence it's the least violent of all his films um, and it's kind of saved for a purpose I would say and it, although a controversial scene it serves a purpose in the film and, and I would argue isn't gratuitous for gratuitous sake um, but it's a restrained Tarantino in the best way but he allows you to live in this film and hang out with these people across uh, a few days. And you, and in, in those few days, you experience the, the low lows of Rick Dalton's career in, in a single day to the highest of highs in a sequence that is both fun and hilarious and also kind of touching um, as, you know, as he's really tell, he's writing this love letter to Hollywood, which is how everyone keeps describing this film, but it's very, very true. Um, and then there's the whole Manson thing that's going on in this, like in the background, 
that keeps popping in to remind you that this film is headed towards something that we know that there's this inevitability towards the end. And you kind of, every time you're reminded of that, you have this dread of like, Oh yeah, that's right. I can't live in this fairy tale forever. And so when you do get to that moment, what he does is really something that's spectacular, if not controversial. Uh, and I won't be spoiling it here. Um, but, I know, uh, Shannon, you mentioned uh, earlier about the controversy around Sharon Tate's character and Margot Robbie not having enough lines. The thing is, is I just felt like this this movie was all about Tarantino's admiration and love for Tarantino. The way that we get to spend an afternoon with her as she watches a public screening of one of her films with an audience and see them react, which is quite literally, that's what Tarantino does, that he is putting himself in that character. He was doing that in the theater. Aaron and I were at as we were watching, even kicked up with bare feet uh, on the next. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but but like he, it was clear that he has this so much respect and admiration for her character that I was disheartened to hear people make a controversy out of that. Um, because I, I just think that people were misinterpreting what exactly what was ha yeah, what was going on. Um, and yeah, I, again, I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I, I love all of the choices that he makes here. I love so much the soundtrack. Um, and uh, in fact, Greta Gerwig recently presented an award to Tarantino. I think it was the Palm Springs Film Awards. And he got the Best Director Award there. And she was the one that presented. And she has this <laughs> terrific quote that uh, actually made Tarantino emotional as he was accepting his award. Uh, but I'm going to read what she says here because she just nails it in a much more articulate way than I ever could. Uh, but she says, uh, quote, Quentin Tarantino makes movies as if movies could save the world. Movies can kill Hitler, free slaves, and give Sharon Tate one more summer. He makes movies like movies themselves matter, like they're both high art, which they are, and that they are populist art, which they are. They're speaking the most profound truths to the biggest crowds with the bravado that comes with the confidence that collectively everybody will be changed for the better by the experience. That is totally true. Everything she says there about Tarantino and this movie specifically absolutely nails it. This is not just a love letter to Hollywood for Tarantino. This is him. And, and this sounds silly to say, uh, but this is Tarantino saying like, movies can do more than just be entertainment like we can like literally save the world with movies and i know i know how ridiculous that sounds but tarantino actually believes it and he makes a movie with that full commitment and you feel it i love this movie so much it's endlessly rewatchable it's my favorite film of the year it might be my favorite film of the last 10 years this is my uh this is aaron's aaron's uncut gems is my once upon a time <laughs> so anyway um that's all i'll say about it it's on all three of our lists and uh you know i'm curious let's just do a re quick recap here of which films we all had shared on our lists it was once upon a time in hollywood uncut gems was in all three yeah um yeah. parasite um was that it I irishman mm -hmm. wasn't right marriage story marriage story was marriage story because i didn't have it oh okay and irishman wasn't yeah, online yeah. sorry that's <laughs> it that's it then yeah um, <laughs> very long <laughs> so we had three that's pretty good that's good those three are yeah those are, those are it was an incredible year like 2019 was oh, just yeah. a shocker like the first half not because we were potting midway through the year and you were like this might be a year of no good movies I mean there was I, us us I was the was only one, one yes, for a long right. time yeah. because yeah there was nothing else yeah. and it was even a weak <laughs> summer too like it, it was uh, Avengers and I think uh, I can't even remember what else came out this summer yeah I mean, Spider-Man, uh, shortly after Sp that. Exactly. There you go. Spider-Man. A million Disney movies. Lots yes. of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. 
Aladdin. Toy Story 4, Aladdin. Lion King. <laughs> yep. Well, and now 2020. It was a bad first half. It's off to a strong a start, start here with Doolittle. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've grown every time that trailer comes up. Every time. What is he doing? He doesn't need more money. He, he can't be doing it for the love of that script, right? <laughs> I think it was made, like, I think he filmed that before Endgame, though, or before he finished all the Avengers oh, stuff. It's probably a film that's been just recut and reshot and re- whatever. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a mess. But yeah. Um, <laughs> well, great. We have potted for nearly two hours. Any closing thoughts on the year before we wrap up here? Guys, it was a, it really was a no. great year. It was good. <laughs> it was a great year. Yeah, I was surprised. I have to give it to Hollywood. They actually knocked it out of the park. Good job. So nicely, gen- nicely done. If twenty if twenty nineteen would would um like if it the second half was as bad as the first half, I was going to be done with movies. I was going to quit watching movies oh, altogether. Qu- okay. Yeah, be so hard they to still do this got podcast, me. but yeah. Yeah, we're just going to talk about old movies. <laughs> so they got me. Congratulations, Hollywood. You got me for one more year. Um, I'll ask one more question. One last question here. Uh, is there a film in 2020 that you're most looking forward to that you currently? I mean, I feel like I never I don't really know what the Oscar <laughs> movies are like until summertime or after Sundance or whatever. But I'm curious if there's anything that either of you are particularly looking forward to. I. So I haven't read this book and therefore don't really have a connection to it, but Denis Villeneuve is doing mm-hmm. Dune. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And go. I know a lot of people love that, but I the last three films he's mm-hmm. made were all five-star, A-plus perfect. That's and it. so I think that's going to be good. I think so, too. I think, yeah. I've been, I'm also <laughs> Safe unfamiliar Safe to with say. the source material. <laughs> but, yeah, just you had me at Denis Villeneuve. I'm in. So, oh, yeah. 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 Well, uh, do we know if Batman is coming out in 2020 or is it 2021? <laughs> Ooh. I don't think it comes out in 2020. I have no clue. It's got to be 2021, <laughs> It's right? probably 2021. It feels like it's okay. 2021. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it whenever We'll, we'll probably get out. three or four like indie Robert Pattinson films in between, which would be great. Get, I want them yeah, all. Give, give me every Robert Pattinson. Lighthouse 2, Lighthouse 3, give them all. Yeah, I'll take them all. Just change the guard to be someone else, a new movie, you know? Swap out Willem Dafoe, put in Nick Nolte or something, you know? <laughs> Can I just say, like, just to go back to Uncut Gems one more time, it's great to be able to say that I'm a fan of Adam Sandler again. I was a huge Adam Sandler fan growing up. Huge. I love Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore yes. and all those movies. And then I stopped being a fan. At what movie? And then now, where, where did you stop? I'm back. <laughs> I stopped after uh, Big Daddy, probably. Okay. It was, I, I lasted a little longer. It was Little Nicky. <laughs> little Nicky is when I, I had a, I'd have a yeah. come to Jesus moment with myself when I was like, these aren't good. <laughs> Wait, no, I know. Fifty First Dates is the last Adam Sandler movie I liked. That was good. And after yeah. that. Wedding Singer is a, yeah that was before Fifty First Dates but yeah. I think it was before yeah Man. yeah so it's it's nice to be back in the fold with Sandler yeah and he's gonna make ten more Netflix movies <laughs> 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 well great Shannon Aaron thanks for joining me this is like I say my favorite part of the year yeah. this was a, a delight um, and uh, we should do a spoiler uncut gems pod and also I do want to do a top ten a decade. Um, and so I don't know my window of time of when it's no longer cool to be doing those or if it was ever cool, <laughs> but uh, I love lists, obviously. So let's let's plan on doing that if you guys are down. Definitely. But anyway, we might just have to re- we just might just have to revisit uh, Little Women. I'll watch it. I'll watch we both do need of them. to do an episode. I, was, I will do it with yeah. Shannon if you don't see it, Aaron. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. So No, yes. I'm committing. I'm, I'm doing it. I'll now. watch the 94 I'm version first and I'll have notes. So, yeah, well, great. I'll say my podcast we did 
because we cover all sorts of pop culture, so we did top three of movies, books, TV, and uh, albums for the decade. And that was hard. So even just coming up with the three, I don't know about a ten. Well, <laughs> gonna have to think a lot. We could of, do twenty. On that one. We could do. I mean, we could do this all day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too many, too many movies. Well, all right, guys. Thanks again. Have a good night, and uh, here's to 2020 in film. Thank you for listening to the Brave Little Podcast. Hold on to your butts. 